And so, really glad y'all are here. Um, we're going to be in Romans uh, chapter 10 this morning. We finished up Romans uh, chapter 9 last week, and uh, we're going to be transitioning into 10, or at least the, the first part of chapter 10, uh, starting with verse 1. Uh, if, you, if you haven't been here, or you're new here, or maybe you missed the last couple of weeks, um, kind of giving you a, a little bit of a context of the transition that we're making today from 9 to 10, there's a, there's a substantial difference in some ways and a lot of unity, obviously, in the verses as well. But it's been said that uh, Romans 9 it focuses on divine sovereignty, while Romans 10 focuses on human uh, responsibility. And I believe that was Warren Wearsby. And that's a good, good way of thinking about it, although both chapters do both things. Chapter 9 is a focus on divine sovereignty, and then as we move into chapter 10, it focuses on human responsibility. Another way to state that was the way Pastor J.D. Greer said, he says, Romans 10 is the other side of the coin of Romans 9. The focus of Romans 9 was on God's sovereignty and our salvation, but the focus of Romans 10 is our role in it. So again, that's just another way of stating the divine sovereignty uh, and human responsibility and how those things go together. And we've talked about that the last few weeks now, how, how both those ideas and concepts are uh, true. They both exist. They both are in Scripture. They work together, not against each other. Uh, I believe the most creative response maybe I've ever heard when somebody asked, you know, how in the world can predestination and election and God's sovereignty exist in Scripture right alongside free will and the responsibility of man and man's choice. How do those two things coexist? This was a, a quote from Elizabeth Elliot, and, and she was telling the story. I don't know who she was telling, but anyway, it says, a young woman asked the, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon if it was possible to reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And Spurgeon responded, young woman, you don't reconcile friends. That's like, that, Spurgeon hits the nail on the head there. There's no need, she's asking, is it possible to, to have these two things coexist? And Spurgeon says, not only is it possible, but these two things are not against each other. You don't need reconciliation because they coexist and they complement each other. And so when we rightfully understand the truth of Scripture when it comes to this issue that Paul's addressing in Romans 9 and 10, what Spurgeon said is so true that these two concepts go hand in hand. They are friends. They complement each other. They don't go in contrast to each other. They're not working against each other, but they form the, the truth of God's word regarding salvation. And I've always said this, that we definitely may not understand it. I definitely don't understand it, um, especially in all of its forms. But just because we don't understand it doesn't make it any less true. So don't allow things in the Bible because you don't fully understand them to be, well, that can't be true. That doesn't mean it's any less true. It just means that God's operating on a different plane, a different thinking level than we are. And so I'm not planning to get real deep into those things today. We've, we've discussed those a lot. But I think understanding that is vital as a backdrop to the verses we're going to look at in Romans 10. So I really got one goal this morning, and, and that is what I kind of titled this message, and that is how 
uh, how we can have or how to have a heart like the Apostle Paul. And when I look at these first few verses, I really think there's two ways we can do that, and we have the perfect example set through, through Paul's life and his words. And so we're going to look at those two contexts of spiritually, how do we have a heart like the Apostle Paul, and then also practically, um, how do we have a heart like the Apostle Paul. So I want to read the, I'm going to just read the first a couple of verses in Romans 10. I'll have them up on the screen if you want to follow along, and then we'll kind of break it down from there. Romans 10, starting in verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. If we're, if we're looking at Paul, Paul's heart this morning and how to have a heart like Paul's, the very first thing we have to identify is what is Paul's heart. And if you put that simply, and you can see it here in these verses, but also in a, a bunch of other references in Scripture, put simply, Paul's heart was a gospel-shaped heart. Uh, it was formed through the forgiveness and the grace and the love that he had been shown through the person and the work of Jesus and one of my favorite places to look, and you can see Paul's identity, and there's a lot of these places, but one of my favorite places to look uh, where you can see Paul's identity is in Galatians. He's writing to the church in Galatia, and this is what Paul says. And I don't know if he, I, don't, I mean, I don't know if, uh, if you have life verses or you, you take verses to, you know, be your foundation, but if we had to identify a life verse for Paul, this, I mean, this is him telling you about his life. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul is making it clear his life is no longer about him, right? He says it's all about Christ who lives in me. If we want to see Paul's heart, all we have to do is look to Jesus because Jesus is the one who shaped Paul's heart. And specifically, look at Jesus and the command that he gave, as you all are familiar with, he, Jesus, as we're getting ready to celebrate with Easter coming up, Jesus lived a perfect life. He, he died a death that we could not die to sacrifice for our sins. He resurrected from that death. But then after that, he, before he ascended into heaven to where he sits on the throne right now, is he gave a specific command to his apostles and to those that were following him. And we generally refer to these words as the Great Commission. And, and this was the mission for all the apostles. It was the mission for Paul. It's the mission for us. It's the mission for the church. It's the mission for this church, the church at large. Uh, and honestly, I'll tell you this. If, if you're ever in a church any length of time, uh, you're, you've, maybe you've heard a couple of sermons, you've been on their website, you've, you've learned a little bit about their core values, and you've not at some point heard just a little bit about the Great Commission, you're, you're probably going to need to start looking for another church. Because the, the Great Commission is the mission of the church. And so if we don't talk about this, if, the, if we're not going to be about this in our core values, in our mission, in our vision, then I'm not sure what we have as a church. We might have a, 
social club. We might have a place that makes us feel good on Sunday mornings. But if Jesus' commission is not the mission of the church, then I would tell you that more likely than not, in a biblical sense, that's not a church at all. You can call it whatever you want, but it's not a church in the way that Jesus established it and intended it. The, the Great Commission was the basis for everything Paul's life was about. And it should also, if we're trying to have a heart like Paul's, should be what our lives are about, how we find our identity and how we find our, our mission in our own lives. So what is the Great Commission? Many of you know that by heart, uh, but if you don't, this is what he, Jesus said. It says, And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So until Jesus returns or until we leave this earth, our mission is right there. It is to make disciples of Jesus baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded in his word. That was the Apostle Paul's heart, and this should be what our heart's about. So the question would be, if we just press pause for a second, how are we doing with that? How are you doing with that? How is Connect Church doing with that? How is the church at large doing with carrying out that mission? I was reading uh, this, this week some content from uh, the Village Church, Dallas, Texas, and they were discussing kind of the same thing, this idea of how are we doing with the Great Commission. And they were reading off uh, some, or listing off some, some global statistics that are reported out by the Joshua Project. If you're not familiar with the Joshua Project, it's a, it's a research initiative seeking to highlight the the various ethnic people groups uh, of the world with the fewest followers of Christ. Uh, you can find out more at joshuaproject.net is the, uh, the website there. They got tons of resources. But let me just read some of these statistics to give you a progress report, so to speak, of how we're doing with that mission. So globally, globally, there's an estimated 50,000 people that become Christ followers every day. There's about 3,500 churches that are planted every week. This is globally. Around the world, Muslims are coming to Christ in unprecedented numbers. The number of evangelicals in the world has grown from 90 million in 1965 to 680 million today. So what that means is today, evangelicals comprise about 9% of the entire world's population. And that's up from 4% in 1965. So evangelical Christianity, as of January 2020, is the fastest growing religion in the world at about 2.6%. Islam is second. It's growing about 1.9%. So if you read these, it's like, mm, we're doing pretty good. And, and, and there is significant amazing progress that has been made of the gospel, not only in the United States, obviously, but around the world. And that's encouraging. I think they, they were reporting that there are now believers on every single continent 
in the world and almost every nation. But having said all that, the Joshua Project also reveals that there's a lot of room to grow. The Joshua Project, what they do, they examine people groups throughout the world. And so what they define people groups is a, is a specific group of people that have a unique language and a unique culture. So to give you an example, I was reading about the country of Nigeria. That's a nation, right? That's a nation. And we know the gospel has reached Nigeria. But inside of Nigeria, it's made up of 544 different people groups. The gospel has not reached all 544 people groups. So when we're talking about nations and we're talking about people groups, they're very, very different things. And we tend to think, because here in the United States, it's all similar. If we go from North Carolina to Tennessee to Kansas to wherever, anywhere, it's all virtually the same. We're, in some ways, we're the same people group. We have the same culture relatively, and we definitely have the same language. Definitely not the case around the world. So to divide that up, they, uh, what they've established is there are 17,000 uh, people groups in the world. Of those people groups, 10,000 have been reached with the gospel. And, and by reach, what they mean is there's healthy, reproducing church, or at least one church, if not churches, within each of those people groups. So that means in Nigeria, there's at least one church in all 544 people groups in Nigeria. Okay, if That would mean it was a reached people group so that it, the gospel can go out to the people in that specific region. But that sounds great, right? So 17,000 people groups in the world, 10,000 have been reached with the gospel. That's awesome. Well, that also means that there's 7,000 people groups still to be reached that have not been reached. And what's really heartbreaking is when you define that 7,000 people groups into actual, quantify that into actual numbers, and it, it's staggering what that 7,000 looks like. So if you take those, those specific 7,000 people groups, is that that is approximately 2.5 to 3 billion people. What amounts to over 43% of the world's population. Now I want you to think about what I just said. I've, I've said a bunch of words you're not used to hearing. People groups and a bunch of numbers. Just, just hear this. 3 billion people have little or no access to the gospel. That means they have very few, if any, Christians living among them. They have no churches, no Bibles, no hope of experiencing salvation and the healing that each of us have received if we are in Jesus. Three billion people. I, I took an image from the Joshua Project I know a lot of you can't see this, but you can see the colors. And so this is a map that shows the progress that's being made in reaching those people groups of the gospel. And I want you to notice the red areas are the unreached or the least reached people groups. And those red areas make up those uh, 3 billion people uh, or the over 43% of the world's population. Now, obviously, the, the yellow, we would, they, the Joshua Project defines as uh, superficially or nominally reached means the gospel's there, but it's not significant. And you can see there's a lot of yellow. And then the green areas, obviously where we live, is a significantly reached area 
or where the gospel is fully established. And so you can see some really amazing things in North America, South America, parts of Africa, Australia, but there's also some very, very significant things going on that are alarming, especially in the center of your screen as you look at the red areas. If you think about just the embarrassment of spiritual riches we have in terms of here in our little green area of the world, we've got a church literally on every corner. We have multiple Bibles in every home, probably in every business, honestly. There's preachers and teachers everywhere. There's spiritual resources that are just too numerous to count. And, and, it's, and I was just thinking about in terms like locally here at Connect Church. The, the incredible blessings and opportunities we have, I mean, just, and I just list off the top of my head. You've got small groups meeting weekly. You've got gender-specific groups meeting weekly. We have three different children's ministries with our Connect Tots and our Connect Kids and our Abide ministry. We have an adult teaching ministry with 128 on Sunday evenings. We have a, a podcast. We have social media with Facebook and Instagram. We have a website that provides not only our sermons but also other resources. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And that's for this little church in Sanford, North Carolina. Just an embarrassment of riches that we have. And so I think we sometimes grow comfortable and we grow content in that. And I think we don't have that picture in our mind. We have this picture in our mind. And we need to wake up to the reality of the world that we live in, not just the church or the home we live in and it really needs to become unacceptable to us to have all of these things all of this fellowship all of these opportunities to worship like we've done this morning to to share in the, the fellowship the reading of the word the study of it and yet there are three billion people that have never heard the gospel that are an unreached people three billion people that have yet to hear the gospel once. So what's the answer to that? The answer is to cultivate a heart like the Apostle Paul's heart. And you can see it so clearly in Romans 10. And we do that really in two ways. And I mentioned those already. We do it spiritually and we do it practically. So number one, spiritually, how do we do that? Well, it's really easy. Look at, look at that first verse again. He says, brothers... My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. First and foremost, we have to seek and pray that the Holy Spirit would put a desire and create a desire in our heart for those who do not know Jesus. Paul's heart desired, is what he says in verse 1, for all people to be saved. Now here, specifically, excuse me, he's talking about the nation of Israel and he's talking about the people that have, uh, have, have heard and, and they don't know or they've rejected the, the gospel. But he's basically saying that his desire is for all people to be saved. And, and if I were to ask you guys this morning, do you desire for all people to be saved? I would certainly hope that you would say, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I want, sure, sure, definitely. Sign me up for that. I want everybody to know about Jesus. But my question would go deeper than that. And the question's for myself, the question's for you, is what does your life show about your love and concern for people knowing Jesus? What do your decisions show about that? What does your money show? What does your actions show 
and reflect about, yeah, I want people to know Jesus. Where is that backed up in your life? Not your words, but your decisions and your actions and the, the lifestyle that you live. And I'm willing to bet that our lives, for the most part, don't always match up with our words. And I'm just speaking for myself because I can say that to be true. And you'd have to examine your own heart to know whether that's true or not. But I'm willing to bet there's a lot of us that our lives don't match with our words. And so we have to ask ourselves one critical question. And it's a simple question to answer with words, not a simple question to answer with life. And that is, do we truly love other people? And specifically, do we love other people that don't look like us, don't talk like us, don't have a religious background like us? I mean, you think about this, guys, and I'm just going to be real for a minute. We're coming off uh, a primary election thing. It's hard in this country right now to find a Republican who loves a Democrat or a Democrat who loves a Republican. All we have all over our country, especially right now, is hate and disagreement. And I don't like you because of this, and I don't like you because of this. And then I'm gonna, we're going to turn this around and say, oh, yeah, I love people. We don't even love each other. I mean, who are we kidding here? I've heard so much hate speech and hate just vile coming out of American mouths about each other. It's ridiculous to think that I can turn around to this person and say, well, do you love everybody? You want them to come to know Jesus? Yes, absolutely. But you just, you just slandered your brother who happens to be in a different political party? It's crazy to me. It's crazy. It's so easy for us to get comfortable in our lives and in our culture that we don't think about anybody but us. And we have to develop a desire and a burden for the lost. If we, if we really love people, and I'm not just saying say it, but if we really love it, you'll have a burden for those people. And that burden will be heavy, and that burden will be something that never leaves you just like it was for Paul, and it was his heart for those that did not know Jesus. He had a burden and a desire. Look at those next two verses, where he, where he, what he says there to follow that up. He says that, for I, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So Paul is saying that that the people here, in this case specifically the people of Israel, they had a passion and a zeal for God, which on the surface sounds great, but then Paul follows up, but not according to knowledge. Their passion and zeal was directed in the wrong direction, in the wrong person. Paul says they were passionate about seeking their own righteousness, not God's righteousness. They believed that their good works, their good lifestyles, would be good enough to earn their own righteousness, and that ultimately they did not need God's righteousness provided through his son in the person of Jesus. I'm sure you guys have, have, have heard this. Uh, as, as you guys know, I work at a college, and I have from time to time the opportunity that God gives me to interact with students uh, about things that are, I think, far more meaningful than academics, and that is their, their spiritual lives. And from time to time I've asked people uh, had a chance to just ask what they believe, why they believe it, and um, you get all kind of crazy different answers. 
But one thing that I've heard a lot, especially in the last four to five years, is this sense of, and I'm sure you probably heard this, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you sincerely believe it. So if you want to, if you want to be a Muslim and you're just devout, then, then you do you, and that's awesome. And if you're sincere, then good for you. And if you want to be a Christian and you want to follow Jesus, then, then you, you be about that and you be sincere. And the sincerity is what matters. And I've heard that over and over again. And, and, and I'm sure you probably have too. Let me just tell you that that reasoning and that logic cannot be any more ridiculous or false if you tried to make up something. Uh, many, many Jews were, were absolutely sincere in their belief about their own righteousness. And what Paul says is, that amounted to nothing but them being sincerely wrong. That's what they were sincere about. They were sincerely wrong. See, the object of a person's faith, or better yet, the person in whom their belief is placed, is absolutely what matters. It's not the degree of sincerity in which a person believes. And I've, and I've used this example in talking to, to students and, and staff and my coworkers is I can sincerely, with all of my heart, believe that I can get on top of this building and I can jump off and I can fly. I can believe that 100%, right? And y'all know what's going to happen, right? If I get on top of this building, two things are going to happen when I jump off. Number one, my belief's going to not matter because I'm going to fall and I'm not going to be able to fly. And number two, I'm definitely going to get injured if not killed. So, was my belief sincere? Yes, I totally believed that. Well, then what happened? Why didn't it help me to fly? Because my belief was in the wrong thing. My belief was in a, an ability to fly in which I didn't, do not have. That sincere belief didn't transform me into something that was capable of flying. Sincere belief doesn't matter. And so many people believe, well, if I'm just sincere in this and I believe in this, then it matters. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. The truth is, what your faith is in, who your faith is in, the object of your belief is what is vitally important. We need to keep that in mind when we're talking about spreading the gospel to the nations. and We talk about what it means to love others, even in our culture, that people may be very, very sincere in what they believe, and they could be sincerely wrong. And that's a very, very sad thing. And that's what was going on right here in this text is they sincerely believed. They had a zeal, but they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They sought to establish their own righteousness. That's the spiritual side. But then practically, number two, what is, what is the Apostle Paul talking about practically? How do we have a heart like Paul's? Verse 1 again, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer. If you underline in your Bible, circle in your Bible, and prayer. There you go. Two words. To God for them is that they may be saved. See, what's going on here is that Paul not only mentions his heart's desire, yes, for people to be saved, but notice there's a practical side that he put his desire into action by praying for them. And I mentioned earlier, like, if you, if you really love someone, then you would truly be burdened for them, which then subsequently should lead you to praying for them. So loving, burden, 
praying. It should kind of be in that order, leading to some type of action. In this case, it is prayer and taking action to help and serve the people that we say we love, that we say that we care about. But practically speaking, if you feel like maybe you're like me and you don't actually love other people the way Paul loves others, and maybe you're like me and you don't actually pray for other people like Paul prayed for others, one of the most very practical things that we can do is simply to stop and remember what it means, what it was like when we first came to know Jesus and reflect back on the salvation and the undeserved gift of grace that we've received from God. See, if you think about your salvation, and we can be really haughty and prideful about this, our salvation was, number one, totally free. Number two, it was totally by grace. And number three, it was totally, without question, undeserved. Free, by grace, undeserved. John Piper, he expounds on this idea a little bit more by giving a practical analogy. I I love this. He said, how can we feel the wonder of having been rescued freely by Christ, then not live for the rescue of others? And Then he says, surely, surely it is unthinkable that we should be drugged from the bottom of the lake, resuscitated at the cost of another's life, handed the instrument of rescue, and then just sit down and play cards on the beach while others are drowning. Piper's illustration is a good one because as harsh as it sounds, it's probably a pretty accurate picture of most of our lives. We've been drugged from the bottom of the ocean We've been resuscitated. We've been given life. We've been given the instruments you have it in your hand this morning. It's called the Word of God. The instruments to save others. And most of our lives are defined by those last couple of words. Sitting on a beach, playing cards, or whatever we're doing while other people are drowning. In total contrast, Paul because of the grace and the love that he had been shown, he was willing to do anything to make it possible for others to come to know Jesus. And that's the way we should be. We want to have a heart like Paul. We should be willing to do anything to get the gospel to our coworker, to our neighbor, to our friend, to send people out. Maybe you're not willing to go. Maybe you're not called to go, but somebody is. Send money, send support, send prayer, whatever it might be to get the gospel to go. I was reminded of a, of a news story that I read, I think it was a couple years ago. It was in Panama City Beach, uh, Florida. A lot of you probably remember seeing this or you've seen something similar. This was in the summer of, of 2017, and it, it stuck in my mind for a lot of reasons, but um, there's several different articles you can find online. There might even be some video. I don't even know. I didn't see that, but there might be. But it was, it was Panama City Beach, Florida, in the middle of the summer of 2017. I mean, you, I mean, talk about sitting on a beach playing cards. It can't be in a better situation, right? And it was a regular, beautiful day at the beach. People, families everywhere, they're out playing, enjoying the sand, the water, everything. But almost in an instant, everything changed as there was a small group of people 
I think it was between 8 to 10 people, they got caught just off the shore in a vicious, nasty rip current right off of Florida's Gulf Coast. And I, I put up one article that I found this week that kind of described the events of the day and some of the people involved. There was one lady there. Her name was Roberta. I want to say her last name was Ursary or Ursray. I'm not sure. But anyway, it says she was there. Her husband, mother, nephews, and her children were enjoying the warm water when she said she heard her two sons screaming offshore that they were stuck. And she quoted saying, I honestly thought I was going to lose my family that day. She ran into the rough water to save her children. And she was like, thinking, she said this was her quote to the paper there. It was like, oh God, this is how I'm going to die. Uh, people on the beach, she said, around her, encouraged her not to go in after them. She said, but she said, I refused to, to listen to them. I refused to watch my children drown, and I went out anyway. Now, I want you to remember that statement. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But one by one, after she went out, her family followed her, and they too were in the water and overtaken by the water. And in the chaos of all this, what they end up finding out is her mother suffers a heart attack in the water as they're going out trying to save this, this group of uh, people that are in this rip current, rip tide. There was another man there by the name of Derek Simmons, and it said he had recently moved to the area with his wife from Alabama, and he said they heard the commotion, people pointing at the water, and he said initially his wife thought it was a shark. That's, if you've ever been on the beach and you hear people screaming and yelling, you always think it's a shark, so I can uh, agree to that. And, but he says there was, a, there was a guy in the water, and he's saying, man, they're all stuck out there. This riptide's pulled them out. I tried to go out there to get them, but if I go any further, I'm going to get stuck myself. His wife, Jessica, who said that, was telling the news outlets that she was a, a very strong swimmer, she told the Herald that she went in after the family while instructing others to connect with her in a, in a chain. And Simmons described it like this. It was the most remarkable thing to see. People who don't even know each other and trusting each other that much to get those people pulled to safety. And if you remember the story, it was reported as many as 80 people ventured into the water to literally form this human chain to pull those swimmers out to safety one by one. And there's probably better pictures. This is one I found online. And you can kind of see it um, a little bit uh, right in the kind of the center of the screen, that line of people going out. And that is into the middle of uh, the rip current, the riptide there. And it's not far off the shore, obviously. It's not like they were you know, 400 yards offshore. They just got caught in the rip current there, and they formed this human chain of people to get them safely back to shore. And, and this is an incredible story of bravery and courage, selflessness. I mean, you talk about 80 people teaming together with people they did not know to risk their lives, to save the lives of people that none of them knew. I mean... It's a crazy situation. People that acted in the moment. And, and thankfully, the good news is everyone, to my knowledge, to what I was reading, everybody that was caught in that uh, current, they were pulled to shore safely. Some were hospitalized, but they ended up being okay. And, it, and it, if you think about this, it's an awesome testament to, number one, the power of unity. When we, when we come together for anything, we can do anything, okay? The power of the human will when we come together for the greater good of all people. 
but on a much, much larger scale than being saved from drowning, which is super important. But even on a larger scale, this story is a perfect example of what we should be willing to do for those who don't know Jesus. We should be willing to go to extreme measures. Be willing to maybe even risk your life to share the good news of Jesus with people who've never heard, never believed. But as I close this morning, as we close this, I, wanna, I want you to notice one specific thing. And that is how this incredible act of courage, this, this saving of all these lives was started. Remember I told you to remember that one line from that one mom? She saw her two sons caught in the grip of that rip current, and they're screaming for help. And everybody on the beach said, no, 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 if you go in, it's going to take you too. Don't go in. And, and you remember what she said? She said, I refused to watch my children drown in front of me. And she went out anyway. And she realized when she went out that probably she was going to die, very likely, and her sons were going to die too in the process. But, but notice this. She loved her son so much that she was refusing to watch them drown. And she risked her life to save them. And because of her willingness to go, what happened? Other people followed her, right? And that made it possible for not only her sons to be saved, but all of ten people to be saved. So if you think in a spiritual sense, are you, am I willing to be the first person to go out into the water? That's really what I'm asking you this morning. People may support you, they may not. When she went out into the water, she wasn't looking back to see who was coming with her, right? She's like, I refuse to watch them drown. You can come with me or not. I'm going in. Your life, your comfortability, your, your, your desires very, very well may be on the line if you were to step out and be the first person into the water. And, and the question is this, from a spiritual sense, is do you, do I, do we love other people enough to be the very first person to step out and pursue them with the good news of the gospel? I cannot answer that question for you. The person sitting beside you cannot answer that question for you. But here's the thing. If you're not willing, you need to ask yourself why you're not willing. So it's probably one of two things. One is you don't have the desire. You need the Holy Spirit to place that desire into your heart. Because if you don't have the desire, you're not going to put your life at risk. You're not going to put your comfort at risk. So don't think that, oh, when I get in that situation where life is on the line, I, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll spring into action. You won't because you have no desire. That mom had a desire intrinsically in her heart for her kids to go out in that water. So number one, you might need to be praying for a desire for the salvation of others, like Paul mentioned in verse one. Or you might be number two, that you have the desire, but you've never put that into action. You're not actively praying. You're not actively serving. You're not actively helping people to come to know Jesus. And that looks a thousand different ways. That might be, you know, you talking to someone. That might be your life on display. That might be you sending money to missions. That might be your tithes and offerings to this church. It might be a thousand of those things and all those things combined, right? But is there any action, and I would say specifically in the area of prayer, about the desire in your heart? 
If we're to have a heart like the Apostle Paul's heart, we have to have a desire and a burden for people. And then that, secondly, that desire and that burden has to practically lead into action and consistently praying for people, consistently taking action to serve those people. So we're going to close the service a little bit different today. Um, I'm going to ask the band to come. They're going to close the service. And, and as they're coming, you guys can come on up. Let me just right now ask you guys to stand with me, okay? Y'all stand with me, and I just want you to bow your heads, close your eyes for just a second. And, and as the band's coming up and you're standing, I just I want you with your eyes closed and your head bowed to truthfully ask the Lord this morning to examine your heart. Ask him to show you the areas of your heart that need to be changed if your heart's going to look anything like Paul's heart for the lost. So as you're, as you're praying and as the, the band begins playing, let, let me invite you to do something that, that we don't usually do to close the service. And that is, if you, if you feel the Lord speaking to your heart this morning, challenging you in some area of what we've talked about this morning, some area of this scripture, let me invite you to do something. And that is to, to come forward this morning to physically bow here at this altar on these steps. Physically bow your body, bow your head before the Lord. Ask Him to change your heart. Ask Him to change your perspective. Ask Him to change your prayers. Ask Him to change your actions. And let me just tell you, there's nothing, as you're praying, there's nothing magical about bowing at an altar. There's nothing magical about bowing at your seat. But sometimes we need a physical approach, a physical movement to get our heart moving in the right direction. Because our heart is stubborn. Our heart is deceitful. And our heart will cling to pride and to sin and to comfort as long as we allow it. And sometimes it takes our body moving into a position of bowing and humbling ourselves before God before our heart will actually move. And so that might be you this morning. It might not be you. But if, if it is you, let me just invite you to, to come this morning to bow physically and spiritually. And let me just tell you, I'm going to be the first person that says, I need to change. I'm going to be the first person to be on my knees this morning with you. And if I'm the only one, that's fine. If you're the only one, that's fine. That mom didn't ask Hey, is anybody coming with me? Is anybody else going to go in and help my, my, my sons? She didn't ask that question. She went because she knew that she was supposed to go. She had a desire, and she wanted to put it in practice. And I'll be honest, sometimes, at least for me, this preacher has to preach to himself. And maybe this message is just for me. And if that be the case, then that be the case. But if it's for anybody else, let me just ask you to, to pray. The band's going to play as long as they need to. But the main thing is that you pray as long as you need to pray. Lord Jesus, I ask you now, in these next few moments, wherever we may be in this room, whatever posture you may lead us to physically, that you would help, help us to bow our hearts, to bow our heads, to bow our whole lives before you. 
Lord God, I ask you to change our hearts to look like Paul's, to change our actions and our prayers specifically to look like Paul's. And let us not be so caught up in the comfort of the life around us, but be thinking about those and burdened for those who do not know you. Lord, I pray that in this time of prayer as we close this service, that you would help us, cultivate in us, put a desire in us to change what we've been doing. Yes, there's some things that are working, but there's so many things that aren't. Change our heart, change our prayers. In your name.